Well, good morning, church. I think our drummer was a little excited on that one, don't you? (laughs) Man, that's fun. There's something about enjoying it when we are worshiping God in his place. And hey, this time of year is graduation season, isn't it? So I just want to give a quick shout out to all of our grads, whether they're the little ones graduating, but especially those high school and college grads. Can we give them a round of applause? And that's applause for the parents and guardians also. Um, church, I'm going to encourage you to commit to pray for our graduates, especially those those college grads going off into the world, our high school students who are now college students going off to college. And don't just pray for them during this season, but pray for them regularly. Commit to keeping them in your prayers as we send them out to do God's work in God's world uh, as part of us. We, we send them. We don't just say goodbye to them. Um, and they're going to need your prayers. They're going to covet your prayers. And, and pray for the parents too. Uh, it's, it's that bittersweet time, right? If you're one of the parents, you're one of those, maybe even the grandparents, you're watching the little grandbabies grow up, you're watching your kids grow up and move out. And, and I know some of the bittersweetness. I am a parent of a graduate, uh, so I get that feeling. Um, but I also know that for some of our graduates, there's a whole lot more sweet than there is bitter. For those college students that are getting out, they're like, yeah, finally, they're adulting. Just wait till you get a job. That's about to end, but, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. For the college or the, the kids heading off to college, they're like, woo, you know, spreading the wings, a little more freedom out from the, the control of mom and dad so much. And, uh, you know, it got me thinking about that era in my life and, and what it may have been like for you. Growing up in, in the Fitz home, we had some rules, right? What were those family rules that you had back in the day? Because I remember I was excited to get away from some of them, but now I'm the one making some of those in my home. So you probably had some of those standard rules that most of us had. You don't play in the street. Don't play with matches. You know, come home for curfew maybe. Uh, where I grew up, we were in a, a subdivision out uh, in the middle of the country. So it was just come home when the street lights come on. Uh, and if you were playing, you know, a, a ball game and the ball happened to hit one of the street lamps and break it, then maybe you extended how late the curfew was that night. Um, we also had this rule. Both of my parents were teachers, which meant we had a whole lot of time off in the summer, but not a whole lot of money. So we traveled a lot by van. We had a family camper van that we had built ourselves. It sounds hippie. It was really more just thrifty than hippie, right? And my parents were not at all hippies. They were just thrifty. Uh, but one of the standing rules was, Anytime that vehicle stops at, at a rest station, at a gas station, at any kind of station, get out and go potty. Like, make sure you've potty before you, anybody else had that rule? Like, you go on family vacations, potty before you go, like, mom's standing there, like, with a checklist, like, checking everything. Have you gone to the bathroom? Have you gone to the bathroom? Right? You know, you get that rule. Well, there were some other standing rules in the Fitz house when I was growing up. <laughs> one of them, and this was, yeah, I was pretty little for this one, so I don't remember it as much, but my siblings tell me the rule was, stay off of mean Mrs. Wilcoxon's yard. And I've heard that if you knew Mrs. Wilcoxon, you'd know why we called her mean Mrs. Wilcoxon, and you would know why you needed to stay off. That was your self-preservation, stay out of her yard. There was always the one, you know, clean your plate. My dad had this rule, make sure you clean your plate. And there was, you know, sometimes when that would backfire, there was a moment when I was four, maybe five years old, dad had made the meal and he served us peas. Now, I don't like peas. 
And, and I, forgive me for this, but I think peas are just dirt wrapped in like a thin boogery shell. That's really all they are. It's gross. It sounds gross to explain it that way. There's no other way to explain it. That's what they are. And so my dad made them and they were bad. They were mushy. And so he said, I couldn't go play until I finished those. And I was like, oh, so I take the spoon. I shovel them all in. I'm trying to, you know, just, you know, down the hatch. And my mouth is filled with these things. My sister's sitting across the table. She starts giggling and laughing. I start giggling and laughing because she's laughing and we're laughing and, and, but I'm not eating them. They're just stuck in there because you can't swallow peas while you're laughing. And my dad is doing everything but laughing. He's upset, like, don't spit your food out, blah, 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 blah. And it was that day that I discovered that the mouth is connected to the sinus cavity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you caught it. Like, it, a couple moments later, and like little rockets, like a machine gun of peas out the nose. The surprise on my eyes, it was painful. It was startling. It was like the, I didn't know what was going on. My sister was laughing more. My dad was even more upset. It was not a good night. Dad, if you did just let the peas stay on the plate in the first place, it all would have been fine. That's what I'm saying, right? So I still don't like that. If you make a meal for us, I'll eat them, but... I will pretend. So now that I'm a parent, I've discovered some more of those rules. And in the Fitz home where I'm the dad, we, we only have a, a handful of rules. And, you know, they're pithy little sayings. You know, things like just respect others and respect yourself. Build trust. Don't break it. We got things like that in generic rules because they cover most everything. Or at least you think they do. But like every parent knows, then you find yourself in these one-off situations where like, Am I really saying what I'm saying? Isn't that covered by respect? Like, don't hit your sister with a rubber chicken. I, I would have thought, like, under the respect level that, or, or don't eat the crayons. Really? And then as we dig into that situation a little bit more, we realize, oh, no, no, no. The actual rule needs to be, don't trick your brother into eating the crayons. Like, that's not a good thing. Or even more recently, stop trying to echolocate your sister. You're not a bat, and she's getting annoyed. Like, did I really have to say that? Did that? Why am I having to say these things? But you find yourself in these situations. But the gist of all of it, of all those rules, whether in the house that I grew up in or in the house that I now manage, all those rules come back in some way to relationship. They come down to this. The parent cares about their kid. Like, that was all the rules. All those rules, in some way, shape, or form, even the ones I didn't appreciate at the time, even the ones I resisted, the ones my kids resist now, are for our well-being. That's what good parents do. They set up some boundaries for our kids' well-being because we're concerned about them, because we love them. That's how rules are. And I imagine you would say the same thing about some of the rules that you've had to follow and some of the rules that you have made. And it's no different in God's household. We're starting a new series today called The Top 10. And we're going to take a look at the most famous list of rules the world's ever known. God's Ten Commandments for us. Now, a lot of people are familiar with this idea of the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about the Ten Commandments. But if you go out on the street and you ask most people to list just a handful of them, most people have trouble making it to three of them. Not even in order, just naming any of three commandments. We know they exist. We think they might be kind of important, but we actually don't know what they are. And so for some people, they just think the Ten Commandments don't have any relevance anymore. It's just God's list of do's and don'ts, some regulations, some religious rules, some good moral principles that are probably outdated, and God just trying to be a joy-killed dictator from heaven. Now, if you think that 
the list of the Ten Commandments are something along the lines of how we get on God's good side of the way that we earn our way into heaven. If I'm good enough, if I obey enough of these, if I obey them enough of the time, if that's your thought, then you're missing it. Because it's really all about sequence. It's a matter of sequence, and sequence matters when we come to these commands. Here's how God introduces the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, he says, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now let's just look at what God is saying there. He says, I am the Lord. I am your Lord, your God. That's who I am, which means you are my people, my kids. I'm looking after you, and I have rescued you from slavery. Pay attention to the sequence of what's happening here. Because God doesn't just plop some rules down arbitrarily at a random spot in history. We'll understand these best when we understand the context in which they were given. And so the context was that God had created and formed a people for himself, the the people of Israel. And, And these people were to be his representatives to show the rest of the world who God is. And how to be in relationship with God. These people were formed for a special relationship with God. But these people became enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years, they were slaves under the pharaohs of Egypt. And then God heard their crying, and he heard their moaning, and their groaning, and he saw their suffering. That's what scripture tells us, that God heard their cries and their groans and saw their suffering. It's interesting, scripture does not tell us that God saw their good behavior, that God saw how obedient they were. It doesn't tell us that God heard their prayers only that he saw their suffering and he heard their cries. And so his compassion was aroused. And so God raised up a guy named Moses to be his messenger, his representative, to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of God's people. Set my people free. And so Moses did, a little reluctantly, and with a little divine coercion, the Pharaoh let God's people go. Now, there's a whole lot more detail to that, but that's for another series at another time. And God miraculously rescued his people. Soon after Pharaoh said, okay, y'all can leave, he changed his mind. He was chasing down. He was going to kill them all. And God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites made their way into a new place on the other side of the sea. And then the sea engulfed their enemies. God miraculously rescued his people. And then he miraculously provided for his people. He provided water and food. He took care of them. He sustained them. And he did it all miraculously. And it was there in that context that God met with Moses again on the mountaintop and said, here is the gist of how to do life. And give this to the people. Show them these commands. Teach them these commands. And it was there at that point that it all happened. So remember, sequence matters. Everybody say, sequence matters. Say it with me. Sequence matters. All right. Sequence matters. Notice the sequence. God rescued, and then he gave the commands. Rescuing came first, the commands came second. Rescue, then commands. Which means that obedience to these commands was not the way that they got God's attention. That God's favor could not have been on them for their obedience because they did not even have the commands yet when God did the rescuing. The rescuing came first. Now here's why this is important for us. Because our default mode as people, as humans, is to mess up the sequence, is to get this out of order. 
Our default mode is to think, if I obey enough, if I do enough good, then God will. No. That's the wrong order. That's out of order. That's a broken sequence. You ever try to use a machine that's out of order? You ever go up to an ATM trying to get money and it's out of order? You go to ATM, out of order, no money. You go to McDonald's hoping for a Sunday or a vanilla cone and their ice cream machine is out of order. It's broken. You're not getting any ice cream. You're out somewhere in public and you need to use the restroom. You go to a public restroom and the sign says out of order. You're having a bad day at that point, aren't you? <laughs> when it's out of order, it's broken, it doesn't work, and the, you got problems with that. Some of you, some of you have gotten things all out of order and you've messed up the sequence. Some of you are following a broken religious system because you have it out of order. You think if you'll do something, then God will love you. If you can just do enough, if you can obey enough, if, if, if you, then God. And that's not at all how it goes. God rescued and then the commands came. And that's always how God works. But we notice thousands of years later in the story of Jesus. And we fast forward to our time on the other side of the cross and the other side of the grave. That this is how it works. We are not saved because of what we do. We are saved by what God has already done for us. The rescuing has already happened. So your obedience doesn't get you in good with God. It doesn't earn you the right to anything with God. God has already done it all. That's what the cross and an empty tomb were all about. That's what we celebrate in song every week. That's why our drummers can get so excited when they play. Because God has already done for us what needs to happen. Our obedience simply demonstrates our love for God. It's getting it in the right order. Listen, God rescued before he gave them the commands. So obedience to those commands could not have been the way to get in good with God. These commands can't be for the purpose of earning God's behavior. I don't even like that we call them commands. I think we'd be better off calling them words of life. Just listen to how God talks about his commands, all of his commands, when he's talking to his people in Leviticus 18. It says, if you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. Notice God's why behind the commands to give us life, to find life in them. They're life-giving commands. God's heart is demonstrated here. And what we see is that God's heart is for his people. God's heart is to bless his kids. Like any good loving dad, he wants to bless his kids. When my kids were little, I gave them a rule. We had a yard. I said, you can play anywhere you want inside of our yard. Anywhere you want. Anything you want to do inside the yard, you can go do that. Just don't cross the fence into the neighbor's yards. There are big dogs there. There are mean dogs. Those dogs will mess you up. Stay away from that. Don't cross the fence. And don't go out into the street. There's big cars and big trucks and they drive fast and they don't look for little people like you. So don't go in the street. That wasn't restrictive. That wasn't dictatorial. That was a loving decision by a loving dad who wanted to give life to his kids. Stay in the yard. That's where life is. You go in the dogs. You go in the street. That's where death is. Have life. That's why I gave those rules. That's why parents give the rules they give. That's why God the loving father of heaven gives us the rules he gives us because he cares for us. Because he wants us to have life. Listen again to how God sets up these commands. 
It says, I'm the Lord, your God, which means I am God and you are my people. You are my kids. And I'm the one who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. The whole thing that God was doing, he says, listen, I'm taking you from a place of slavery to a land of freedom. I'm moving you from slavery to freedom. So don't turn back to being slaves. You're done with that. You're done with your slavery. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to slavery. And so because of that, here's a way to stay out of slavery. You stay out of slavery by obeying these simple commands. And then he gives them the list of the 10 commands. Don't follow other gods. Don't bow to idols or images. Don't misuse God's name. Make time for rest. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Avoid adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Now, some people hear this as just do's and don'ts and all this stuff about God because he's God or whatever. No, 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 no. Listen for God's heart. That this is a loving act from our God. That this is his love poured out for us. This is his heart shown to us. This is God helping us see who he is. So then as his people, we can show others who he is. This is God's heart poured out for us. Did you hear it? This is, I'm the Lord your God. No other God will love you. No other God will care for you. No other God can rescue you. No other God can sustain you. No other God has created you for life. You put any other God in the spot that I alone should have, And that God will want to steal your life and make you a slave. But I want to give you life and give you freedom. So because of that, because of that, don't become a slave again. Don't be a slave to the busyness of life. Don't be a slave to your anger. Don't be a slave to other people. Don't be a slave to lust and sex and possessions and stuff and money and image and hunger and desire. Stay away from slavery. Let those things serve you, not master you. That's God's heart and his commands for us. Just imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world where everyone is always faithful to everyone else. Faithful to spouse, faithful to kids, parents, to employers and employees. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world with no violence, no hatred, no anger, no murder. Imagine what it would be to live in a world where we were not clamoring and stealing to get more and more and more, but we were freely sharing out of contentment and generosity. And we simply loved each other that way. And we were loved by others in that way. Imagine what it would be if we actually lived in a world where we obeyed just one of these commands. Just one. That's the world God wants for you. It's a world like this. This is a gift to us. This is not restrictive. This is life-giving. Because that's the world God wants for us. Now we could sum all of these commands and all the rest of the commands in the Old Testament up real simply. 613 other commands, all this stuff. We could sum it up real, real easily. Love God and love others. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. Love God, love others. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, here we go again. Fitz, you tell us that all the time. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Yeah, I do, and I'm going to do that unashamedly. And I'm going to tell you that often. Because that's what so much of the Bible comes down to. is to love God and to love others. It, it seems to be when I read scripture that a lot of the Bible hinges on those two things. Loving God and loving others. In fact, that's how Jesus summed all of this up. There was once a time when Jesus was approached by a 
an expert in religious law who tried to trick Jesus, tried to trap him with a question. Because that's what you do. You go up against Jesus and try to trap him. The dude wasn't smart, didn't know who he was dealing with. And he says, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? He's trying to trick him. And Jesus replied, oh, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That is the first and the greatest command. Now, he doesn't end there. He says, that's the first and greatest. Love God. Love him with all you all, uh, all, all that you are, all that you have, all that you do. Love God. First place, first priority in your life. But there's a second command, and it's equally important. He doesn't say, like, love God is here, love people is down here. He says the second one is equally important. You can't separate them. That they're locked in together on the same level. He says the second one of equal importance is love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting here in these two things. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. He quotes Leviticus 19. Two contexts where they're dealing with the law, investigating the Ten Commandments. It says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Listen, Jesus did not do away with the Ten Commandments. He didn't do away with the law. He simply fulfilled it. He summarized it. He built his ministry on these commands as a foundation. He he wasn't getting rid of them. After all, listen to what Jesus said as he began one of his most famous sermons. He said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill them. Not do away with them, just take it to the next level. And he built his ministry on that foundation. In essence, Jesus told us again and again, The way you're going to demonstrate your love for God is by obedience to God. You'll show your love for him if you obey him. You'll know that you love God. God will know that you love him if you're obedient to him. And obedience to him is not restrictive. It's life-giving. He says, in essence, love from God, the love we receive from God, should do something in here, should do something in our church, should do something in our heart and our soul that causes us then to love God in return. The love from God should compel us to have a love for God. But it doesn't stop there that our love for God should shape how we love every single other person. All of them. So we receive love and it changes us to be people who reciprocate love to God and demonstrate love to others. That's the picture we get from Jesus. So that's why all the commands, not just the top ten, but all the commands, Old Testament and New Testament, act as signposts to show us how to love, how to love God, how to love other people. That's what it demonstrates for us. But remember, sequence matters. Everybody say it again. Sequence matters. Oh, you guys are good. Listen again to how God begins the Ten Commandments. He frames it up. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery, and then gives the first command. You must not have any other God but me. There's a reason the first command comes first. It's an issue of priority. It's an issue of most importance. It's This first command is the most significant of them all. Because if we can hit it out of the park on the other night, we, we can avoid adultery and murder and hatred and anger and we not steal and we can obey our parents and we can rest on the Sabbath and we can not have any other images and idols. We never take the Lord's name in vain. But if we don't love God first, none of that matters. We get the other nine right and we miss it on this one, we're still out of whack. This one comes first for a reason. Because it's the central thing. It, All the others revolve around this one. They all revolve around this. It's like the hub of a wheel. right? The hub of a wheel. All those other things revolve around this. 
And this one command, this one place, there's this one spot that you get. That that's where God is. Right? Like, this is how a wheel works. I have this axle or this skewer, as it's sometimes called in the bike world. And this is what the wheel revolves around. Now, all those other things are spokes. Now, I need these spokes. These spokes help hold the wheel together. The, the rim is important. It, it's going to get me somewhere. But if I lose this piece, if I lose this axle, I can try and put something else in the place. I, I can put a bolt in there. I, I, it's about the diameter of a pen or a pencil. I could shove one of those in there. I, I could put some string in there. I could get real creative. I could shove just about anything I want. If I can make it fit, I can cram that into that spot. Is it going to work right? No. You put anything except this particular skewer, this particular axle on this wheel, this bike is not going to work right. I don't want to ride that bike because you're just heading for danger. It's going to wreck. I can try to force it. I can pretend that it's fine. It's dangerous. It's going to wreck. It's designed for one thing. Friend, this is the metaphor of your life. Your life is created with all these different spokes. You, you, you got the spoke of family, and maybe you got the spoke of marriage, maybe the spoke of kids. You got work, you got money, you got housing, you got cars and possessions and stuff and hobbies and activities and desires and hungers and all that stuff. You got a spoke for every area of your life. And some of those spokes might be really good, but they're spokes. Because at the center of your life, you got a place for an axle. The place for the rest of your life to revolve around. And there is one thing and one thing alone designed to fill that spot. And it's God. You put anything else in the God spot, you're heading for danger. You're heading for a wreck. Your life is created so that God alone is at the center of your life. And the rest of your life revolves around it. All the spokes are connected to him. And you might have some really central spokes. You might have some really good spokes, some really strong spokes. Maybe the spoke of family is a really big one in your life. Maybe work means a whole lot to you. But if you get the wrong thing, if you pluck one of these spokes and you're trying to turn it into an axle, you're going to mess it all up because it's not designed for that. That's just not how it works. So what does the wheel of your life revolve around? When you look at your life, what does the wheel of your life revolve around? Well, what's at the hub? What's at the axle in your life? The central thing that everything else takes its cue from. You can have some really good things in your life. But you put a good thing in the God spot, and it's going to become a God to you. It's turning it into another God. And it will fail you. Because God and God alone could fill the God spot in your life. Listen, you can have really good things. This week, my wife and I will celebrate 21 years of marriage. And that, that, listen, she deserves the applause, not me. <laughs> I've had it easy. Don't ask her how easy it's been. Just saying. 21 years of marriage. And I'll tell you, my wife is a phenomenal wife. She is incredible. The love that she has for me she makes, she makes an awesome life. Let me tell you a secret. She makes a terrible God. My wife is one of the strongest spokes in my life that helps hold things together. But if I take her from the spoke spot and put her in the God spot, it's going to fall apart. Because my wife cannot do that. That is so unfair to do to my wife. 
Because she can't play God. She's not my redeemer. She's not my savior. She's not my creator. She's not my sustainer. She is not God. And to put her in a spot where God alone should be is so unfair to her. But listen, there is no spouse. There's no parent. There's no kid. There's no hero. There's no human that can fill the God spot in your life. And you put them in that place, you're just waiting for a wreck. You'll wreck them. You'll wreck your relationship because we can't fill the God spot because we're not God. None of us. I could try to shove any, any of the other things in there too. Maybe money. Money is a great servant. It's a terrible God. I love my job. It is an incredible job that I get to have to do what I get to do with all of you. But my job is a terrible God. My kids, my hobbies, my activities, my desires, you name it. Whatever you cram into this God spot will fail you because it's designed for God and God alone. So friend, what needs to move out of the way in your life? What needs to move to the side from your heart to allow God to have the spot that God alone deserves? Well, what needs to step aside so that God can step into the God spot in your life? Is it family? Is it spouse? Is it relationship? Is it money? You just start asking questions. What does your life revolve around? Well, what are the key things that determine where your money goes, where your time goes, where your anger goes, where your effort goes, where your dreams go? And you'll find out right away what's in the God spot of your life. Now, here's the beautiful thing. God alone is the one who deserves this spot. And God doesn't want to compete with anything else for that spot. Listen, God alone is holy. God alone is majestic. He alone is creator and sustainer of you and me and everything else. He alone is savior. He alone is redeemer. He alone is God. And he alone deserves the God spot in your life. But when you give that spot to God, when he, it's a central priority, when he has your attention and your affection, and when you surrender to his will and you submit to his leadership in your life, then all the rest of it goes the way it should. It doesn't mean you won't have problems. It doesn't mean that suffering won't come. It doesn't mean that you won't have heartache. We're still in a world of sin and we're still sinners. But it means that the spokes won't own you. That they'll do what they're supposed to do. They'll take their cue from God. They'll revolve around him. And they'll serve us. When God is in the central place in my life, that's when I'm most free. That's when my money and my activities and my dreams and all the other things and all my possessions, those things serve me instead of enslaving me when God is in the God spot. When God is in the God spot, that's when I love best. When I love God most is when I love others best. I'm the best dad, I'm the best husband, I'm the best brother and son and friend and employee and employer and leader and neighbor and you name it. I'm at my best when God is in the God spot and so are you. Because we put anything else in there, it's all out of whack. And we're messing it up. And the life just doesn't spin the right way. Now the good news is, if you got something else in there, See, God, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way into that spot. But he's going to ask for it. He's going to demand it. He wants it. And it's never too late to move other things aside and let God take the lead in your life. So, friend, what do you need to move to the side so that God 
can have a God spot in your life. Because when he has that spot, that's when life is going to be the way it should be. A life of freedom, a life of love, and a life of joy. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. We're grateful that you love us as you do, that you created us as you have. And you've made us for a place for you and you alone to have the central place in our life. And you didn't do it because you're, a, you're some divine dictator. You're, you're some eternal judge who wants to just rule over us. But you did it because you're a loving dad, a loving creator who wants us to know the freedom and the joy and the love of being loved by you and by others. God, you created us for a picture of heaven. That if we just dream about what our life would look like with you alone in the God spot, the picture we see is heaven. And you created us to experience that even now. So God, I pray that that would become our reality more and more in an increasing way. That whatever we need to move to the side so that you can take the central place in our life. Whatever we have turned in to a little God in our life and that's making us a slave, God, I pray that we would find freedom from that. That we would begin the hard work today of examining our lives. And that through this series, we would be just ready to surrender and submit to you, ready to discover all the other things that are competing with you for that God spot. So God, over the next several weeks, as we dig into these commands, let us hear your heart. Let us hear your voice. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us today and through this series to help us, to help us reorient our lives around you and you alone. And God, would you bless us as we do that. May we find the joy, the freedom, and the love that you have for us as we give it all to you. Just a moment, Lord, as we sing, may this song be our prayer. May it be our declaration. Jesus, we sing it to you. We pray this to you in your name. Amen.